In his gospel, Luke tells us about Jesus' teaching about prayer writing. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The word of the Lord. Good morning, all souls. Good to be with you. My name is Stephen, and uh, I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor of this place. Uh, so it's good to see you. Welcome. I want to start this morning with three quick stories. And the first is of a young woman in the upper Midwest who, at age 18, began to experience over a three month period rapid loss of her vision. She was diagnosed with juvenile macular degeneration. and uh, every day, along with her parents and her identical twin sister, who experienced no loss of vision in her eyes, uh, they would pray that God would give strength, that God would bring the, the strength to kind of move into life. And the strength came, but healing did not. After marrying at age 31, uh, she enrolled in a three-month program to uh, kind of, you know, learn how to, to, to live. She uh, learned how to read Braille, how to get around town with a cane. And, you know, she was all about trying to figure out how to live life to the fullest, to live with joy. And part of the admittance to this program was a battery of tests to determine her visual acuity. It came back 2,400, which is... Uh, the standard diagnostic for profound vision loss, uh, more than twice the limit for legal blindness. After completing the program, she returned home, and again with her husband, they, they knelt down to pray and to read scripture together, as was their practice. And as they did this, she began to weep. 
moved by his wife's tears, he also began to cry and he began to plead his case with God. And she recounts that he put his hand on her shoulder and began to pray with a boldness that she had never heard from him before. God, you can restore her eyesight tonight, Lord. I know that you can do it and I pray that you will do it now. And when she opened her eyes after praying, she saw her husband kneeling beside her, the first clear visual perception she had had in 13 years. Neither she nor her husband had ever prayed specifically that God would bring healing to someone before. And to date, her eyesight has remained intact for 47 years. The reason that their names aren't part of the story is because I didn't read about it in a magazine like Christianity Today, but in a medical journal with researchers from Texas Tech and the University of Indiana who were studying the results of sudden and unexplained recovery with what they termed proximate intercessory prayer. Next story is of a woman named Monica who raised her son in the North African harbor town of Tagast. Uh, Monica was a devout Christian, but she married a man who despised her faith, and so she wanted nothing more than for her son to come up and know the Jesus that she knew and loved. Her son was exceptionally intelligent, and from an early age, he began to kind of capture the attention of the cultural elites in where he was. He became one of the most sought-after public intellectuals in all of Europe. And as his career began to take off and his influence began to grow all throughout Europe, so did his reputation as a playboy who had a string of lovers from Rome to Milan. And his reputation for uh, drinking, uh, an appetite of which would rival any frat boy. All the while... Monica continued to pray for him day and night. And while she was in prayer, he was meanwhile using all of his intellectual fierceness and influence to tear down the faith that he was raised in, to tear down the faith of his mother. And then one day he started listening to sermons from uh, the, the bishop in Milan, initially to kind of criticize the logic, but then as he began to listen more and more, he thought, maybe there is something to this Christianity thing that I just missed out on. And then he went home, and one day while he was out visiting his mother, he was out in the garden, and he describes that he heard a voice like a child singing say, open it and read, open it and read. And so he went and he found his mother's Bible. He opened it, he read, and on the spot he experienced what he described, this flood of light coming into his soul. He went back to his mother. He asked if he could be baptized. She broke down in tears, giving thanks to God that he had finally answered her prayers after 19 years of pleading. Her son's name was Augustine. He would go on to become arguably the most influential theologian in the history of the church. Last story, in 2010, a group of eight people began to sense a call to pray in the uh, Detroit Boulevard neighborhood of Sacramento, California, the state's capital. It was known as one of the most notorious crime-ridden areas in all of the city. Each uh, neighborhood and each house in this neighborhood was a place of danger. Nonetheless, this group of eight decided to walk the streets, praying over each of the houses. And they, they prayed for the spirit of Christ, of Christ to come and, and reign over the violence, over the addiction, over the, the spiritual oppression that they felt in that place. 
One of the eight who would pray was a former police officer and gang detective named Michael Shong. And he said that each time we prayed over the houses, we began to feel the burden of oppression becoming lighter and lighter. One time when they were out walking, a woman came out and accosted them and said, Why, what are you guys doing constantly canvassing this neighborhood? And they said, well, we're here praying. And she said, well, then pray for me. My knee has been hurting for years. They prayed for her. No more pain in her knee. They did more than that, though. They began to move into this neighborhood. They started a church called Detroit Life. Two years later, the local newspaper, the Sacramento Bee, reported that there were no homicides, no robberies, no sex crimes, and only one assault in Detroit Boulevard in the years 2013 and 2014, just a couple years after they started praying. A small group of people began to pray, asking for the kingdom of God to break in and for the powers of darkness to be lifted. Now, I tell you these stories to simply point out that prayer is a profound grace. The God that we worship, the God who created everything, is interacting on earth to the requests of the creatures that he made. How can that be? It's a grace greater than we can hope for. But it's also a profound mystery. We live in the post-enlightenment age of skepticism where the idea of a God who is powerful enough to hear the often contradictory prayers of billions of people and yet personal enough to be involved, well, it sounds incredulous at best. And the truth is, some of us are fired up by these stories of God showing up in prayer and others of us are sad or even maybe a little bit angry. I mean, it's great that that woman's no longer blind, but... Can that be a coincidence? And if it's not, then why did she win the prayer lottery when there are so many people in the world suffering? Or if you're going to claim that God answers prayer, how do you explain all of the prayers that go unanswered? I mean, it's great for Augustine's mom and all, but why wait 19 years? I mean, did God have his phone off the hook? And then one day he just decided to pick up? Or is God like some cosmic bureaucrat who's just generally overburdened and overwhelmed by the state of the world that we have left it in, that he didn't notice when somebody had put the right form in front of his desk and he could find the motivation to put the stamp on it? I mean, it's nice that those people started praying around and walking, but what about other factors at play? I mean, they moved into that place, and then just when it got bougie up in there, what about the people who were living there? Where did they go? Did they get to stay? I mean, if we're going to talk about divine action, are we going to talk about divine silence as well? And all of these questions swirling around, the heart of them is what happens when I pray, when I'm asking God to show up and do something? Is God going to do what God is going to do even if I don't pray? Are the same things going to happen in the world when I do pray? Or is it like the former head of the Anglican Church, William Temple, once said when he was asked by a skeptical London reporter, if all this talk about prayer and answers was just coincidence, he said, when I pray, coincidences happen. And when I don't, they don't. What about you? Is prayer more likely to produce a fire in your heart or a shrug of your shoulders? Because that's where we tend to live, suspended on the wire between faith and doubt. And don't get me wrong, we still pray in that place. 
We still pray with whatever faith and whatever unfaith we have, but do we pray the way that Jesus prayed? Or do we pray like smart, sophisticated Americans in the passive voice, offering vague and careful petitions so as to create an effective mental barrier between us and God and us and disappointment or us and surprise? And part of the reason we do that is because we recognize, yes, there is a vast difference between us and between God. We do not have it all figured out. Tim Keller often says that if we knew what God knows, we would pray for what God gives. The thing is, we don't know what God knows, and that really bugs us. It has ever since the days of Eden. And yet there is a reason that Jesus tells us to pray like children. The thing is, we're not really sure where we stand in that relationship. I mean, yes, Jesus calls God Father, but he was Jesus, Son of God, you know, begotten, not made, and all that stuff that it took the best minds of the church a couple hundred years to figure out. It's not that we doubt it, it's just that it seems a little bit inaccessible to ordinary disciples like us. So do just a little thought experiment with me for just a moment here. Imagine for just a moment that God said yes immediately to everything you have ever asked for. What would happen? Would some of you be sitting next to the person that you are sitting next to now? Well, my guess, a lot would happen at first, but then over time, the same questions, the same hesitancies that keep us from coming to God with reckless abandon that he says is our birthright would begin to creep up in us again. So Jesus, his disciples asked them to ask him to teach them how to pray. And so he says, pray like this. He starts out, Father. And we're like, great, yes. One God, one Father over all that is. In a world as divided as ours is, yes, I can get behind that. Sign me up. Hallowed be your name. Okay. I mean, God does seem to ask us to come before him with praise an awful lot. And I mean, doesn't that sound just a little bit needy? I mean, I guess, you know, I guess, though, if, if, if we aren't hallowing his name, we're going to hallow something else or someone else's name so we can get there. Your kingdom come. No, that's where it starts to break down right there. I mean, prayer is a mindful reflection, definitely. Prayer is a kind of centering technique to help us deal with all of the anxieties and uncertainties in our world. Absolutely. Prayer that forms us from the inside out to be a different kind of person, a person who radiates peace. Sign me up for that. But prayer is a means of partnering with the spirit of bringing the shalom of heaven into the world. Prayer that actually makes a difference in the world. Well, that's where the modern mindset shaped by enlightenment rationality begins to creep in and pump the brakes. I don't know about that. Jesus goes on in Luke chapter 11. It doesn't stop there. He says, when you pray, ask recklessly like a child asks a father. And for a lot of us, this kind of statement raises as many questions as it does answers. I mean, Jesus himself says later on, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Well, so then why do I got to ask him? I mean, it, it, 
why do I need to say it? Doesn't he already know? Isn't he good? But what if prayer is more than asking for this, that, or the other? What if it is a relational exchange in which we partner with God in his work of renewing the world? What if God wants more from us to be in community, in relationship with us? For Jesus, prayer makes a difference in the kingdom. It makes a difference in the world. It makes all the difference In fact, for Jesus, you could go so far as to say that prayer is the primary way that we participate in the kingdom of heaven coming to earth. And we tend to think that it's through our really, really hard work. Because we know all about that. We know what it means to work really hard. But what if prayer isn't just for the work? What if prayer is the work? What if it's more than a tactic for acquiring our heart's desire? What if it is a profound invitation and not just for the pious or the spiritually among us, but for everyone? What we're talking about is prayer as intercession and the word intercession in Tuncano in Greek means to be a go-between. It means to ask for somebody else, to make a case for somebody else to God. And most of the time that it's used in the New Testament, it's used in reference to what Jesus does for us. Jesus who makes intercession to God on our behalf. But it's actually a paradigm that goes way back to the very beginning of Scripture. In the first pages of the Bible, God intended for humans to be intercessors in the world. Image bearers is what he calls us. It was the task given in the garden to exercise dominion, which is another way of saying to partner with God in bringing God's intention to all of creation, of bringing God's shalom, to let it spill out into the world. The thing is, we don't live into the task. Self-interest outweighs the sense of call. And like that great prophet Johnny Cash once said, we want the kingdom, but we don't want God in it. We don't want to be image bearers. We want to be image makers. We want to create things in our image, not reflect someone else's image. Turns out that's still the central problem of the world that plagues our politics, that frames all of our isms. It's the reason that we degrade the environment. It's the reason we degrade our bodies. It's the reason there's such a vast chasm between who produces resources and who consumes those resources. Where did it go wrong? Well, if we were created to be image bearers, to be God's intermediaries in the world, the thing is we just forfeit the role. But the story of Scripture is the story of a God who does not stop looking for intercessors, who does not stop looking for partners in the world. He calls Abraham to start a new people, to to enter into a covenant, into a relationship with him. And there's a scene where God is talking with Abraham about his plans to destroy these cities, and Abraham actually argues with God. He takes this role of being an intercessor seriously, and he says, God, if there are 50 good men, will you not destroy the city? And God says, sure, if there are 50 good men. He says, okay, 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 what about this, though? What if there are 45 good men? What about then? Sure, if there are even 40, I won't destroy the city. Okay, 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 one more time. 
What if there were 30 or 20? What about them? Would you, would you not destroy the city then? If there were 20, ah, how about 10? And he keeps going back. He keeps going back. He keeps going back, shamelessly interceding, asking for God to show the mercy that he has already been shown. Same thing with Moses. The Israelites are out in the wilderness. Moses goes up onto a mountain. He leaves Aaron in charge. And he's gone for a bit. So the people decide to collect all the gold and make a golden calf like you do, right? And Moses comes back. He sees the calf. And he says to Aaron, dude, you had one job. You were to keep these people. Like, what happened? And, and, and I love this. This is Aaron's defense. He says, hey, hey, hey. He's like, you know how bad these people are. They were going to kill me, so I scrambled. And this is what he says. I'm not making this up. This is straight from the NIV. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. And then they gave me the gold, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> and at this point, God's like, I'm done with these people. <laughs> like, that is the lamest excuse I have ever heard. And Moses says, no, you can't be done with them. He argues to God. He says, look, you did not bring them out of the wilderness. You did not bring them out of slavery just to kill them out here. You're a God who liberates. So liberate. They're still in bondage. Liberate them from this. And in the end, God says, okay. God relents. Every other time that word is translated in the Bible, it's the word repent. Moses intercedes, God changes his mind. This is a God who responds. In his book, God Has a Name, John Mark Comer notes, Yahweh isn't the unmoved mover of Aristotle. He is the relational dynamic God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who responds who can be moved, who can be influenced, who can change his mind at a moment's notice. And this isn't a lower view of God. It's a much higher view. He would be less of a God if he couldn't change his intentions when he wants to or be open to new ideas from intelligent, creative beings that he is in relationship with. The theologian Karl Barth calls this the holy mutability of God. God has not stopped looking for partners and we are the body of Christ, but the thing is we have been severed from the head. And so through your offspring, God promises to Abraham, I will make you my partners again in his sovereignty through that family tree. Jesus has come to restore the link. And my point in all of that is that all of that stuff is in the background when Jesus is telling these parables. This is the God that Jesus knows. And prayer is how this moves from theory to experience. The disciples ask Jesus to teach them how to pray. So he tells them a story. Say you have this friend, hypothetical scenario, and you go to this friend at midnight. Bear in mind, this is an agrarian culture. The middle of the night is really the middle of the night. No electricity, no lights. The idea is the house is pitch black. People are asleep. People do not want to be bothered. And you say, friend, let me some bread. I have a friend who's out of town who's visiting, and I don't have anything for him. Hospitality in Jesus' day was a big deal. To have somebody show up and to have nothing for it, it was a way to bring shame onto your house. Huge problem. And so what do you do? You go knocking. You go knocking on your neighbor's door. And the one inside says, dude, what are you doing? I, I'm asleep. You're going to wake up my kids. The door's locked. I can't help you out. 
Jesus says, I tell you, even though he won't give you the bread because of friendship, because of your shameless audacity, he will give you what you need. And I love this story because Jesus is using this rhetorical device that was popular among the rabbis of his day by comparing one bad thing to another good thing. And, and the hinge of it is on that phrase, how much more then? That's the key part of this phrase. And the point is, if you can get this lazy, grumpy, crusty neighbor to get up in the middle of the night and get you some bread, and how many of you have a neighbor that is less than awesome? I mean, everywhere we've lived, except here in Decatur. We have awesome neighbors here in Decatur. But there's always that one neighbor that's like, where did you come from and when are you going to move? I will help you pack. Whoever that person is, picture that in your mind's eye and then repent and come back. Jesus is saying, look, if you can get that guy to get up and get your, your, your need in the middle of the night just because you knock and you text and you call and you make yourself generally annoying, if you can get that person to give you what you want, how much more then is a God who is kind and generous, who loves like a father, how much more is that God going to get you what you need? All you got to do is ask. And so I say to you, he goes on, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Jesus is saying some very simple things when it comes to prayer. You do not need to be a biblical scholar to decode this. One, he's saying ask. And secondly, he's saying ask shamelessly, like straight up just go for it. Last week while we were driving home from one of Graham's baseball games, uh, he said that he wanted to visit six major league ballparks this year. Uh, that was the goal, visit six parks. And he listed them off. Uh, Dodger Stadium, naturally. Toronto, Pittsburgh, Tampa Bay, Washington, Baltimore. And I, I didn't shoot him down. I was not like upset about it. I mean, I thought about showing him a map. But I love the fact that he just threw it out there. I mean, I know what he wants. Jesus says it's more than that. You keep on asking. When you are knocking on a door, you don't just go like this. I mean, someone's going to think something fell down, right? They're not going to assume somebody is at the door. You keep on knocking. Jesus is giving us permission to be annoying. Why? Well, it's, no, it's not because God is slow to respond. It's because he has given us the authority of his children. Jesus finishes with this. He says, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, never happened in my household, but there you go. Which, if your son asks you for a fish, will give him a snake instead. Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil... He's talking to his disciples here, so apparently Jesus is feeling a little feisty this morning. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? How much more? The one who is good, who is just, who has brought you into the mercy and intimacy of standing as children, how much more will that God do what is good? And he is saying, you can pray as I prayed because through him we are brought into the family made heirs with Jesus. 
And so to pray in Jesus' name is not just a tagline that we throw on to the end of our prayers. It is to enter into standing with the Father in the same way that Jesus did. He is saying that when we pray, we approach them as children because God has not stopped looking for partners. Prayer is how heaven comes to earth. It's the means by which we push back against the forces of darkness in the world. That is what we are doing when we pray. And here is the why. To intercede, to stand in the gap with God on behalf of others is fundamentally motivated by love. This is not some sort of, you know, treating God like a cosmic genie in a lamp or a slot machine. If sin is love turned inward, then prayer is an opportunity to turn that love outward. And the invitation is to pray out of that place, directed toward the other, to ask God on behalf of the other and to act within that that place. Intercession is a way of bearing the hurt and brokenness and pain of our neighbors of our friends, of those we know, of those we don't know, and carrying that to God, to turn with God toward the other. At a certain point, we meet people who have more need than we have the resources to meet them in that need. And so intercession is meeting others based on God's resources and not on our own. I love how Richard Foster puts it. He says, if we truly love people, we will desire for them more than than is within our power to give them. And this leads us to prayer. It's to call for the distribution of the resources of heaven here on earth in, in this school, in this neighborhood, in this community, with these people, in this broken political system, it is to ask God to come in and bring heaven to earth. In this conflict, it's to have our knuckles at the door and to say, we need heaven to break into earth here and we need you to do it, God. This is how Jesus restores our identity as image bearers, as citizens of heaven, as ambassadors of Christ. But they're not so well-kept secret throughout the history of the church is that most of us just don't really like to pray. I mean, we do it, but it's like the spiritual equivalent of eating kale. I mean, we know it's good for us. Some people even go so far as to get, you know, T-shirts made about it and all that. Does anyone really like it, though? I mean, this is a, this is a safe space. <laughs> I'm from California. I can take it. We try to sneak kale into everything. It's just a thing. But we don't like to pray. And the reason we don't like to pray is because we don't believe that Jesus has really given us the authority. But he is saying the victory is already won. I'm just looking for people to jump in. Not because he needs us, but because he loves us. Blaise Pascal was a 17th century mathematician, overall kind of genius of a guy. And he, he pondered about this, like, why does God uh, ask us to pray? And in a little book simply called Thoughts, he wrote this. God has instituted prayer so as to confer upon his creatures the dignity of being causes. In other words, we're not just passive spectators in the drama of the world waiting for God to give us our lines. We are ones who have been called to participate and influence the story that unfolds. 
We're called to act in, in, in ways of improvisation out in the world. And again, it's not because God is overwhelmed. It's because he has adopted us into the family as children. He has given us the ability to share in the redemption to ordinary people like us. What if there is so much that God wants to do in the world that he is just waiting for people to partner with him in the renewal of all things? What if he is waiting on heirs of the promise, co-heirs with Jesus to be his image bearers in the world? We long for God to bring heaven to earth. God longs for people to share in the life of heaven with him on earth. David Fitch, who tells a story about that community in Sacramento who went on a prayer walk, writes this. This is what prayer does. His reign becomes a social reality. It creates the social space for his presence. It opens the way for his kingdom to break in. It enables us to participate in his work. It shapes us for mission. It gets us out the door and into the world. It's the founding discipline that constitutes his people into his faithful presence. And so our practice for this week is simply to pray for others. To pray shamelessly. To acknowledge our need, to acknowledge our brokenness, and to participate in his work. And so tomorrow night, our, our missions team is going to lead in a night of intercession here. You are invited to come, to gather, to pray to, to ask God to bring the peace of heaven into earth. And specifically, we are going to pray for the war in Ukraine, that God will be with and strengthen the Ukrainian people, that he'll bring an end to this senseless war. Karl Barth, who I quoted earlier, was the principal author of the Theological Barman, uh, Declaration of Barman. It was the German confessing church's stake in the ground against anti-Semitism, against Nazism, he was no stranger to tyranny, and so he would regularly tell his students this, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. And so the question is this, who wants to be part of an uprising? When we pray, when we call on God to bring heaven to earth, that is what we are doing, and we don't do it alone. We are doing it with people around the world, with a whole cloud of witnesses who cheers us on. We're going to ask our Father to give us what is good, and we're going to trust even when the way is unclear. In a practice guide, you also have an invitation to join on a prayer walk, to essentially do what that group in Sacramento did, to walk around the neighborhood, to ask God to uh, give you eyes what to pray for, to, to meet the needs of the people in the homes in your own neighborhoods. And we do this out of a place of love for our neighbors and our neighborhood. So maybe bring some next, you know, some comfy shoes to your next community group. But those are just a few ways, friends. The invitation is still there to pray as you can. So as we close, let me go back to the question that I asked kind of in the middle here. What if God were to give you everything you ever asked for in prayer? What difference would it make? And how different would this city this community, this church look? What would happen in families that are struggling in our world? What are you going to do with that authority? Jesus asked his disciples, or Jesus' disciples asked him how to pray, not because they didn't know how to pray, not because they didn't pray, 
They were first century Jews. They arranged their day around prayer, morning, midday, and night. No, they asked him how to pray because they wanted to learn how to pray like he prays out of a life that has cultivated this awareness of this this place of knowing the heart of the Father in stillness so that even when he asks, he asks out of trust, even when that trust leads him to the cross. How do we pray like that, they want to know. And Jesus says, here, it's yours. Theory is powerless unless it is practiced. And so let us pray this week less like a theory and more like a stake in the ground. Almighty God, we come before you as children, acknowledging how much we need And we know that more than anything we need for you to be God, this is the deepest cry of our hearts. And so we come, knuckles to the door, asking for your kingdom to come, asking that you will let us be a part of it. Give us eyes to see the hurting, the needs of our neighbors, our friends, to give voice to our prayers. God, we pray this knowing that you have called us children. You have called us friends. You have called us your partners in this world. So we ask this in your name. Amen.